On this week's Compete Everyday podcast, we welcome ESPN's Lauren Sisler to discuss her story and how sometimes using the pain of experiences in our own life can create the platform we can use to help others. What's up, Competitor Nation? We are back. It is a brand new episode. And we're just over a week away from Thanksgiving. Get your bellies ready for some turkey, some stuffing, and my favorite, mama's chocolate pie. How is your week going? More importantly, how is your month going? What are you doing this month to finish the month strong, to make and just build momentum so that you end 2020 on a strong note, so that you set up 2021 in a powerful way? Because here's the truth. A lot of people you know, are waiting until January 1st to do anything. They believe that they can't go after their goals, they can't work on new things until the new year, which is complete crap. You can't build a great 2021 if you wait until January 1st to start. You gotta start doing the work today. You start gotta start laying the foundation today. You gotta make time to plan out how you're going to attack the new year and then not wait for January 1st to get going, but get going this month. How amazing would it be that instead of waiting till January 1st to start running, you're already starting to run now. You're already starting to build momentum so that when you hit that new year, when that ball drops and we kick off a brand new year, you are already in full sprint mode. People are going to look at you and wonder how you got to this point, how you're just going and blowing and achieving things this year. And you can tell them that it's because I did not wait until this year to work on it. So that is my challenge cry to you today is do not wait until the new year to work on it. Make time this month to get after things so that you start running in December and you are full speed ahead come January. Today's episode is sponsored by Swanson Health. Swanson Health carries over 18,000 wellness products at a great value. So you can pick up your favorite health products, find new ones, and still leave some money left over in your pocket. Maybe for some brand new Compete Every Day gear. I've been using the melatonin for a few nights while I travel to sleep to make sure that I get a well-rested night. And I can tell you honestly that I'm not waking up groggy, but I'm waking up incredibly well-rested. So give them a shout. I like the melatonin. I like the lutein. They've got a ton of amazing products, including zinc, liquid CBD, vitamin C, and more. And you can save 20% off. That's right. If you go on Swanson Health's website at swanson.com, use the code IMPROVE20. Improve 20 and you'll get 20% off site-wide and you'll get free shipping on any order $50 or more. So check them out. They've been incredibly gracious to sponsor this episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. I enjoy their products and I think you will too. So Improve 20 will get you 20% off and free shipping on orders $50 or more at swanson.com. All right, competitor, before we welcome Ann Lauren Sisler to this week's show, I want to give you the heads up that Monday, this upcoming Monday, November 23rd, we are dropping the Black Friday collection early. That's right. We are letting it loose before Thanksgiving starts. Instead of waiting until Friday like we did last year, we are releasing it early on Monday. So just like hopefully you're doing 
We're going to be working hard Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then our team will be off with families Thursday, Friday, and Saturday before getting ready for the weekend and Cyber Monday. So what does that mean for you? That means you need to be on our email list to get first access to the Black Friday collection starting at 10 a.m. Monday morning. If you are not on the email list, your second chance is to be part of Competitor Nation, our free Facebook group that you can join at competitornation.com. You will get access at 2 p.m. And then finally, if you're not on the email list, if you're not in the Facebook group, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? Get in there because otherwise you have to wait until 8 p.m. that night to jump into the Black Friday collection. And honestly, I don't know what's going to be left in stock. I don't know what sizes will have been sold out by 8 p.m. So if you want to ensure that you are going to get one of the brand new releases. We have seven new designs. We have two classics brought back in a new print style, including a black-on-black print and a tie-dye one. We've got sweatshirts, hoodies, crop hoodies, some women's-only designs. We've got hats, flags. It is our biggest, boldest, and best collection yet. And so be there Monday, competeeveryday.com. If you're on the email list, be sure to check your email at 10 a.m. Central, When that drops, and if you're not on the email list, make sure your butt is in the Facebook group at competitornation.com so you get access at 2 o'clock and do not lose out on anything from the Black Friday collection. And I'm giving away a Velcro patch with every order $75 or more and a gym flag for every order $100 or more. So pick up a few items, get a brand new Compete Everyday flag for your gym. That's Velcro patches with orders 75 bucks and up, also free shipping in the U.S. And then orders $100 and up, you're going to get a free Compete Everyday flag. So get ready, drop in Monday, November 23rd, 10 a.m. Central, check your inbox, and now... Let's welcome in ESPN's own Lauren Sisler to talk about tragedy, sports, and how the power of the pain we go through can provide a platform to help others. Lauren, welcome to the Compete Everyday Podcast. Hey, hey, what's going on? So excited to join you and, uh, you know, talk, talk, to, talk to everyone out there that's listening and I just appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, so uh, listeners may recognize you from TV, and, and even though we're not on TV or YouTube right now, uh, I would love for you to kind of share a little bit about what you do today, and then you have a fascinating story, I think, that ties in so many lessons from sports and life that we talk about here on the show, and so I'm excited to dive into that after you get a chance to introduce yourself. Yes, yeah, so um, I am a sports reporter. I have had the opportunity to work for ESPN since 2016, and my journey into sports has been a been an interesting one, to say the least, but uh, very thankful for the opportunity. So I'm a sideline reporter for college football primarily. I also do um, college gymnastics, so that's a little bit in my background. I guess we'll probably get to that as we navigate through my story, and um, then also work for AL.com here in the state of Alabama, which is where I live currently in Birmingham, Alabama, and so I'm a sports reporter there, uh, primarily covering Alabama and Auburn football. So you know there's a guy called Nick Saban out there. Uh, he's been known to win a few games. 
or 10 or, yeah. you know, championships, right? So uh, you might be familiar with that. So I came into Alabama at a very good time in 2011, um, you know, kind of at the, the, the I, I guess, the, the, the liftoff of the dynasty that is Alabama football. So it's been a fun run, um, but enjoying it. And then have the opportunity to, to go out and speak and, and share my story and really just, um, you know, speak to people, provide hope and, and just talk about resilience and just overcoming because life is challenging. It is, it, it's so unpredictable and we can speak to that right now in this very moment as we're kind of closing the book on 2020, right? A little bit. A little bit. I mean, I, I think the lingering effects are going to be with us for a while. I, I love what you mentioned there, just resilience. And, and that is so key in your story. But you also mentioned being right in the midst of Auburn, Alabama, where down there, it's not just a football game. It, it is religion. And it is so much greater. And, and as a sports fan myself, and I know a lot of our listeners are as well, it's so easy sometimes for us to get caught up in the game, in the sport, in the process is life or death. And in reality, it's really not, which is one of the reasons I think you've been so successful at ESPN is, is because you've had a great chance to, to know a bigger picture beyond just sports. You see how, it's, how important it is for some people, but you also understand and come from a perspective that sports is a part of my life, uh, but is not my life. And, and there's so much more to it. I'm curious what led you down the path of wanting to go work for ESPN, wanting to be a, just a reporter in general and around just sports, whether it's gymnastics or football for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, uh, you know, kind of hitting the rewind button to where I grew up, you know, I grew up, um, my mom and my dad and my older brother, and, and he was into sports. He was three sport athlete, football, baseball, basketball. And then I was just all over the place. I've got the battle wounds all over my face from jumping around on the beds. My parents were like, Oh my gosh, we got to get this girl in something. So when I was, uh, when I was at the, the young age of three, my parents enrolled me in gymnastics. And within a week, uh, I remember they used to have these like old plastic pools full of like noodles and stuff yep. and I'm like at the gym and you go in there and, I'm, and they're like okay this girl's got some talent we need to like get her out of this thing we got to get her to the competitive level so very quickly um you know my coaches kind of figured out like hey you know she's got some talent she's fearless she can go out there and do this thing so gymnastics sort of became my sport but as, in terms of a family dynamic, we were around it all the time. Um, you know, it was college football on, on TV every Saturday, NFL on Sundays. And I'm a NASCAR girl. I love me some NASCAR. Um, a little bit of racing. Chase Elliott taking home the championship this year, which is pretty cool. Kind of the family di dynasty there. But grew up going to the track. My brother was on a pit crew. And so on Saturdays, we'd go to the local track and the quarter mile track and and, and watch him and, and watch his team compete. So you know, just being around sports my entire life. But here's the, here's the crazy part. And this is where, like, I talk about roadmaps and how you, you kind of have things mapped out and you think that you're going to go like on a straight line, right? You have this vision for where you're headed in life. You have it all mapped out. you got it figured out. Like, I know exactly where I'm going. And all of a sudden you take 5 million detours and the map starts going like this all over the place. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I wanted to be a sports doctor. And so like, that was the, that was the dream job, right? So growing up, that's all, you know, I wanted to be a sports doctor. And I think a lot of that came from my background in gymnastics. Um, gymnastics has proven to be a pretty uh, dangerous sport with a lot of injuries, like many sports out there. But, uh, you know, I was in and out of the training room a lot, a lot of physical therapy at orthopedics, doc, you know, doctor's office a lot. 
And so I've said, you know, this would be a really cool job getting to do this, you know, getting to help athletes um, rehab and get back, uh, you know, to the playing field. And so that was a dream and a goal of mine all the way into college. And then, um, you know, as we get into my story a little bit more, I sort of had this realization after tragedy struck that maybe this isn't for me and maybe, you know, I'm not passionate about, um, you know, being a sports doctor and also realizing as we mature, let's be real, uh, it's not a matter of like, you know, here's your degree, you know, here, 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 let's go to med school. Okay, here's your degree. All right, go be a doctor. There's a lot that goes into it. And I just don't think I was cut out for it. Um, I didn't love it. I wasn't passionate about it when I got to that later point in my life. And, you know, I just, I felt like I had other gifts that I wasn't tapping into. And so that's when I realized I need to switch gears and find something that is more suitable for me. And that's how I landed on sports broadcasting. That's interesting. What, what did you love most about gymnastics? Well, um, I, I know that this is a, uh, this is not a, a visual medium that we're talking about, but to those of you out there listening, I am five foot nine. So a lot of people are like, wait, what? Like you're five foot nine. How are you a gymnast? Most people, when they, they, they hear that I'm a gymnast and they expect to meet me and they're just like, I thought you were going to be like five foot. I'm like, no, <laughs> kind of, kind of missed the mark on that one, y'all. Um, you know, but, but I will tell it, it was very challenging, right? So, you, you know, you, you pour your heart and your soul and blood, sweat and tears. I mean, I was training 20 to 25 hours a week, you know, uh, growing up when I was in middle school and high school. And then that's when I knew I wanted to earn a college scholarship. And that's what led me to go to Rutgers university. But I just love the sport of gymnastics. I love so many things that it taught me, but it was really just like the dedication to the sport. And that really became my family, just being in the gym, being surrounded by people with, you know, similar vision, similar dedication, devotion, you know, to one specific thing. And, um, you know, just having the support from my family, my parents were just my biggest cheerleaders along the way. And, um, you know, it was just always a lot of fun because you go out every week and you get to perform and, um, you know, you, you, you put in a lot of hours to go out there and compete. And I think that's what I loved about transitioning to the college level is it, it is, you know, getting to be part of a team and then when I retired from gymnastics, so when I graduated from Rutgers, I was 21 years old. So I am now officially a has-been. Thank you very much. Um, like a lot of people that are probably listening to this right now, right? Um, but what's really cool is the transition from gymnastics, competitive gymnastics to now being in broadcasting brings back that same rush and that same adrenaline. And I get that same experience. So when I go out on that football field and stand in front of that camera, my heart is racing and I'm feeling that adrenaline. My palms are sweating and I'm, I'm, you know, it feels like I'm about to salute the judges and walk out on the floor and have this big performance. Right. And, um, you know, I, I'm talking a mile a minute and I'm like, okay, slow down, take a deep breath. Woo. You know? And so it, it, it's, it's great to be able to have that similar feeling. Cause I think that's one thing it's hard as former athletes to be able to replicate that competitive, environment that we grew up in and that we became so accustomed to that really just sent us over the edge in terms of that adrenaline and excitement. Well, and one of the things that I'm not sure if a lot of our listeners are aware of is similar to what you did in gymnastics. You would prepare 20 to 25 hours a week. You would constantly work on routines and, and moves just to get ready for that performance. Sideline reporting, color commentary, you don't just like show up on game day, grab a mic and start talking in the camera. Like there's so much work that goes behind the scenes in that. 
that a lot of people don't realize. And so I think a lot of your upbringing with gymnastics and that constant preparation has to have come in handy now, because what does a typical week look like for you leading up to say a Saturday game? Yeah, that, that is such a great point that you make. And, you know, talking to some coaches and, and Gene Chizik, uh, former Auburn coach, he won the 2010 national championship um, with that team with Cam Newton. And it's interesting because I've had some conversations with him. And even during this pandemic, he brought up some really good points about the importance of the sport, right? The importance of as a competitive athlete, you know, putting it in perspective, you train 365 days a year, right? If you're a competitive athlete, you are training every day, whether, whether it's practice, obviously strength and conditioning, or out there competing. And you're training 365 days for how many games during a college football season, 12 regular season games. And if you're lucky enough, you go to a bowl game, a playoff or a championship. But think about that, the hours that you put in for three and a half or four hours on, on the field, same thing with the gymnastics. You know, our gymnastics meets were, you know, four hours long. I got to do four routines, vault bars, beam floor. And that is a total of about six minutes of performance, right? And so when you kind of put that into perspective and sort of how, how you, um, you know, just the things that you learned from being able to, to do those things and the preparation that goes into it. It is all about preparation. Preparation is key in anything that we do. And I, I, I feel like, um, and maybe even in your line of work and my line of work, Jake, is that we, um, you know, you can prepare so much and sometimes it feels like you're riding a bicycle, but you sometimes have to kick the rust off, right? And preparation is so key, especially in this industry, because, oh, by the way, I'm covering a team two teams. I prepare for those two teams. And then I literally have to ball up all of my notes and throw it in the trash and start over. Because at the end of the day, like you're learning about how many guys on a roster, 80 plus guys, you're learning about the coaches, the coordinators, you know, all the stories, the fans, um, you know, the parents, whatever it may be that surrounds that program. And then you literally soak it all in for an entire week. And then you throw it out the window and you start over. And so your brain becomes very full. I find that when I get home on Sundays after, after, you know, preparing all week, because really my preparation starts on Sunday. As soon as I know my game assignment, I'm already looking at game notes, starting to prepare and then preparing for those interviews and obviously finding stories, finding angles. It's not just the X's and O's. It's getting to know each of these coaches and these players and, and really the program, because I love, I love the personality that each program exudes right I love the personality it's different every conference is different every team is different every coach is different and that obviously you know uh, rubs off on the players as well and you find that they have a different personality Alabama's personality is different than Boise State's personality right yeah. so that's what I love about my job but the preparation is so key so really you front load all those hours so when I step out on that field two and a half hours before kickoff I'm miking up I'm getting ready I'm watching warm-ups but my, most of my prep work is done. Now it comes down to the, the, the observations that I'm seeing on the field. And honestly, if, I, if I'm being honest, I probably end up using about maybe 10% of the notes that I've pieced together leading up to that game. But that, you know, that's all part of the process and what makes the job so much fun and exciting. Well, and, and it makes it valuable because if something were to happen in a game that's very unexpected, you still have 90% tucked away that you can reference and, and that so well ties into the importance of preparation and everything we do and you can't really over prepare if you're doing it effectively because you never know when you might need that and and that one move or that one line or that one piece that you add to a story can completely change the dynamic but no matter how well we prepare for things sometimes in life we're throwing that curveball 
And I know for you, it was your freshman year in college that the kind of tragedy really struck your family and, and threw you into a completely different direction and maybe even a tailspin for a while. If you don't mind sharing just a little bit into that family tragedy and, and how really you kind of came out of it, because what I find now is I'm fascinated on how you use the heartbreak of, of what happened as an opportunity now to help others. Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity to obviously share my story. And it's one that, um, you know, it, it has evolved over time and it has become easier to share with people. And I think that's all part of the story, right? We all have a story. And for me personally, you mentioned um, I was a freshman at Rutgers and, you know, I had the support of my parents growing up. I mean, they were just my biggest cheerleaders, always lifting me up when I was down, just always there for me and my brother. And so when I signed that letter of intent and went off to Rutgers to compete on scholarship, I mean, it was a, such a proud moment for them. Um, seeing all that hard work pay off. And I remember uh, it was my freshman year, second semester, and I called my parents that evening, like I always did on March 23rd, talked to my parents every single day, would fill them in. My mom always wanted to know exactly what was happening in practice. She had to, she, she, she was very involved. And then, you know, just my dad wanting to hear about life and school and everything else. And, you know, I talked to them on the phone um, and, and we said our goodbyes, we said our I love yous, and, and I hung up the phone and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Uh, but as I, um, I went to bed that night, I woke up to a phone call from my dad just after three o'clock in the morning to tell me that my mom had died. And I remember just not really uh, understanding what had happened. I mean, how, dad, what happened? And unfortunately, he couldn't give me an explanation. He said, I need you to get on the next plane you can and I'll be at the airport to pick you up. So I got on a plane, flew home to Roanoke, Virginia, which is my hometown. And got off that airplane and, and ran through the terminal and wanting nothing more than to run and jump in my dad's arms. And unfortunately, when I ran outside, he was not there that day to pick me up and never did show up. And instead it was my uncle and my cousin, Justin, who had to deliver the bad news that my dad too had passed away. And so obviously, um, you know, I'm 18 years old and it, it just doesn't make sense. Both of my parents gone within a matter of a few hours of each other. I just spoke to them on the phone less than 24 hours ago. I don't understand what happened. I don't, I, I can't comprehend how this could happen to my parents. What happened? And unfortunately it would be months before we as a family would really learn what happened to them through the toxicology and autopsy reports. Both of my parents had been um, struggling with uh, chronic pain and going to a pain management doctor in Roanoke, Virginia, and had been prescribed a multitude of uh, uh, medications to help them cope with that chronic pain. And unfortunately, um, you know, they were fighting a silent battle with addiction and both of them overdosed um, within a few hours of each other that day um, in 2003. And uh, really just came as a shock to me and my entire family because we knew they were battling this thing but they were battling it in silence. And I think they were so ashamed of the, you know, the circumstances, because I think that we as a society place such as a negative stigma, a stigma and a negative label on addiction. And I could never use the word overdose and addiction in the same parents, in the same sentence with both my parents, because I felt like I had to keep their legacy alive through the work that I was doing and just in the way that I was living my life. And so for so long, I hid from the truth of what happened to my parents. I was in straight denial and I ran so far from reality that I was able to almost like tuck their story into my back pocket and the truth of their story in my back pocket and just keep running and not acknowledge it 
for years and years and years. And so it was finally at the seven year mark that I finally started to realize through the help of my family and, and really my auntie Linda, my mom's sister, to help me to realize that, you know, my parents aren't defined by how they die, but by how they live their lives. And that I too can use their story to help others, um, like you said. And that's really just become my mission here in recent years to share their story and share my story and really just the evolution of where I was and how I arrived at where I am at today, you know, to be a positive impact and, and to shed light on such a devastating illness and, and to help people to, you know, come, come to the light that are struggling with challenges in their life. Well, and, and that's really how you and I got connected was your work speaking more and more in that realm and, and just as small of a world as, as the speaker world is, we got connected and I immediately was drawn to that story and, and just your work. And so a couple of questions that just curious out of when you were, were gone and your parents had passed, I know you took a little time away from school, right? What eventually got you to go back? Because I know for a lot of us, like when we lose someone or, or people close to us, we kind of just go in a completely different direction. And it sounds like some of yours was mental in terms of the denial and how you were facing that story. But from a going back to what you had done before, how did you eventually get back to where you're like, I'm going back, I'm finishing, uh, I'm going to keep going down my own journey? Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting, um, so my parents, we buried both of them two weeks, uh, within two weeks of burying both of my parents, I actually went back to Rutgers. And the reason for that is because my aunt and uncle basically said, Lauren, like you, we, we, you can't stay at home. You can't sit here. There was nothing for me at home, first and foremost. And secondly, uh, you know, they said, Lauren, you have a commitment to yourself, your university, your teammates, your coaches, you have got to go back to school. You've got to get your education. You've got to continue with your scholarship. And ultimately, this is what your parents would want for you. And so I think at that moment, I was in such shock that it felt like really the only option and the only thing I could do. So I went back to Rutgers. But here's the thing. When I went back to Rutgers, I think in, in, in the grand scheme of things, it ended up being that bubble. I was put into this bubble that was so far removed from reality because my parents weren't supposed to be at college with me, right? Yeah. So I was going back to school where my parents weren't with me to begin with, living this other chapter of my life. And so in some ways, I was able to kind of navigate through that and sort of suppress the emotions that I was feeling. But as that shock started to wear off and I realized, okay, I'm not going to go home for Thanksgiving and Christmas and see my parents. My parents aren't going to be in the stands cheering me on at my next gymnastics competition. And when that reality started to set in, uh, it, it, it was, it was, it was tough. Um, it was really tough. I was always an AB honor roll student and suddenly I'm making C's and D's. I can't focus on my schoolwork. I'm miserable. I cry myself to sleep every night. I've never seen an F on a paper in my life. And suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh my gosh, like what is happening to me? And I felt like I was suffocating. And not to mention, here's the deal. As an athlete, as a collegiate athlete, you have to maintain a, a yep. standard, a, a, a level, um, you know, a, a GPA and, and obviously academic standard. And I was not upholding that my end of the bargain on that. And unfortunately, as my grades were slipping, you know, my coaches, and again, I, I'm telling you this story in a very condensed version, yeah. but we're talking about a timeline of, I would say about a year and a half of this struggle, this real intense struggle where I was just literally like clawing my way to the surface, suffocating, felt like I was drowning and constantly having to swim back to the surface. 
And, you know, what eventually happened is, um, you know, I, I was very much like, I've got this, I'm going to do this on my own. And my coaches were like, let's get you counseling. We can get you tutoring. We can do all these things to help you. And at first I was just like, no, I'm good. I don't need it. You know, I started to lose faith, um, you know, as, as a woman of faith, I, you know, that, that, that is where, you know, I was, I was brought up um, you know, with, with God sort of at the forefront of things. And I was just like, wait, like, I don't need your help. I'm good. And so all of a sudden, like, here I am, you know, trying to do this thing on my own, but I've got all these resources around me. And basically I will tell you that my coaches and my teammates and everyone around me, instead of giving me a hall pass and saying, Oh, Lauren, you know, we, we understand, you know, you lost both your parents. We're just going to kind of let you get by. They said, no, we are going to help you, but you've got to, you've got to pick yourself up and take that first step. We are going to help you, but you've, you, you've got to initiate this thing. And that's when I realized that I've got to quit dragging my feet. I got to pick myself back up and start moving forward because ultimately it does not matter what curveballs this life throws you. You, you are not going to be exempt from life's difficult circumstances. Not a single person is going to be exempt from them. And what I have learned in that process is that you've got to pick yourself up and keep moving. And ultimately you have control of that and you have control of taking that next step. Right. And if I wasn't going to pick myself up and take that step, then I was just stuck in this turnstile of just misery and shame and denial. And just, you know, my life was just evaporating in front of me. And so after about a year and a half, that's when I came to the realization, like, all right, Lauren, you got to get this together. Like if you want to stay in school and not lose your scholarship and get an education and get out of this circumstance and get out, like get out of this situation you're in, you've got to take that first step. And really, I think that a lot of that came from how I was brought up. A lot of that came from what I learned in gymnastics and the resilience and having to just overcome, you know, constantly overcoming the disappointments that happen in life and in, and in sport, right? You know, yep. so many disappointments, the wins, the losses, the injuries. All right, you're going to sit out another whole season because, you know, I broke my leg. I messed up about all these things, right? And so I think that's where I kind of turned the page and said, okay, you know, I got to get control of this. If I want to have a better outcome for my life and find that pathway to success, I got to take the first step. Well, and your story, one, not only resilience and, and just one, thank you for being so transparent, sharing it with us, but talk about the importance of the people in your life, the, the teammates that you had, that you were so fortunate to have at Rutgers, that for people listening, why it's so crucial to be intentional with the people surrounding yourself now in life as an adult, as a young professional, as, a, as an older professional, because you need those people that love you enough to challenge you, that love you enough to say, you know, you can do it, but we're, and we're going to be behind you, but like, we're not going to baby you throughout some of this process. We're going to give you a little bit of slack, but then when it's, it's time to pull the rope tight and, and get you back in gear, like we're going to hold you to that because we believe in you, because we see that in you. And, and what a blessing that was for you to have those people come around you as well, the way that they did. Um, because who knows kind of how things would have gone if, if it had continued, if they hadn't helped shake up that uh, warrior spirit, I should say, competitor spirit in you that, that ultimately rose out of that. One of the things I'm curious about for our listeners that you know, going through this situation, they, they may not have had some of those same struggles or, or that same heartbreak as you have, but they may be looking around thinking, do I know anyone that may be struggling that I'm not aware of? And just like you shared, this was something that no one really knew about uh, that was going on. And, but I know a lot of your work now is with helping others that are 
dealing with this type of loss or, or you know, have these hidden addictions and pains, where, where do you encourage people to start just kind of loving on their friends, their family, their people that maybe there is an issue, maybe there's not, but, but you know, if it is, it's secret and we have no idea what they're struggling with. Where, where do we start loving on those people and, and just being there so that something like that doesn't get to that point? I love that. And it's exactly what you said, loving on others. And I think that through this process, it has really opened my eyes to loving my neighbor, loving those around me. And I've always been such a, uh, you know, a energetic person and, and, you know, I don't know a stranger, but to dig under the surface and to be able to really get to know someone, um, you know, unfortunately in this society, we as um, social media is, is a, um, a proud sponsor of stigma, you know, and, and, and unfortunately, you know, social media can be really great, but unfortunately too, it, it paints this picture and this unrealistic picture for all of us, right? We see what is supposed to be perfect, what is right and what is wrong. And I think that is what sends people into isolation. It sends them into this silence because they're afraid to speak out. And I'm not talking about just addiction, but mental health just in general, right? We are all battling something. Um, you know, and I think that that, you know, our, our mind, our mind and our mental health can, you know, uh, be our greatest asset, but also our greatest enemy. And I think that it's so important to be able to eliminate and compartmentalize some of those unrealistic expectations that we have for ourselves and for the people around us and for our lives and that, you know, like that map that I talked about. Because at the end of the day, what you see on social media, that one picture you see, you see a highlight reel of everyone's life, but what you're not seeing is all the things that are in between. And so I think to your point, loving people, getting to know people on a deeper level, um, you know, and I, I will say it is, it, it's been tough, you know, especially with this pandemic, you know, having to wear masks and not really, um, being able to engage with people the same way. Right. I, I'm such a firm believer that a smile, a hug, a handshake, a, um, just a, Hey, how are, how is your day going? Let me get to know a little bit about you, uh, can go a long way. And I think that one thing I've learned in this process is, Again, we talk about how do we define our self-worth, right? And our self-worth should not be tied up in what we do for a living because I think that's, it's sort of the natural part of the conversation. Like, hey, Jake, what do you do for a living, right? Like that just seems to be the natural thing. But one thing I want to prop people up in, especially in leadership roles, is that you have this opportunity to, um, first of all, be gracious towards everyone that's in your organization, right? Everyone that is a part of the the the, the ultimate goal. And I'll use the example at ESPN. I'm in that forward facing role. Yes, I might be the one that's standing there in front of the camera delivering the report, talking about this football team, but I am only 1% of this entire operation. And so whatever is going on behind the scenes in the control room, you know, the directors, the producers, the, 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 the guy that's over here stringing audio cable all over the field, um, you know, the person holding the, the, the boomstick, you know, catching all the, the, the noise from the field. We all have a role. We all have a specific role that helps to, um, you know, that essentially, you know, goes towards one common goal. And so I think it's so important to get to know all those people, to get to know the people that you're working with and surrounded with. And, you know, just even getting to know people's names and the, 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 the hi, how are you doing, the thank yous, because that opens up a whole nother opportunity to, you know, number one, build that comfort and that chemistry with people, but also 
to have those conversations to be able to, um, you know, possibly help somebody through something they're going through. Transparency is so key. And I've found that in my own story is that the more that I've opened up about my story and been transparent about it, the more approachable I have been and the more that people have come and said, you know, I, I learned about your story. Here's my story. And, you know, I just appreciate you sharing. Here's a little bit about me and what I've been going through. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm just so glad to have someone out there that understands me and understands this and it just opens up that conversation and, and gives you the opportunity to reach out even if it's virtually right now or distance uh you know to, to lend a hand and to, to help people feel like they're not alone and um you know i just think that from, from a leadership standpoint if you can get to know your people you know from the from the top to the bottom and everywhere in between um, and just pour into them because a thank you, a simple thank you, a simple hi, how are you, a handshake, a hug will take you so far. And, you know, um, I'll leave it at this. You know, I just, I feel like when we talk about jobs and how we're all defined, you know, how people define us by the, the, the job you have, the car you drive, you know, the, the money you make, all that stuff, all those material things don't matter. My whole purpose and my whole thought process is, you know, when I see that garbage truck rolling down the street, that man or that woman has an incredible purpose. And they're out here doing us a huge service and their job no more important than my job here on this earth. And chances are probably way more important than my job. And so to be able to help those people to see that what they do for a living is on purpose and what I do for a living is on purpose. And when you can find that purpose in your life, I feel like it will open up doors you never thought possible. Yeah, well, and, and not only that, but when you can become someone who points out the importance of others and what they do and why they're valuable, you, you create not only a ton of goodwill in the world, but you could change someone's trajectory because that, you know, for instance, that garbage man may just think, well, this is just a job, like it's not really a big deal until somebody's like, no, I, I really appreciate you coming by and doing this, this is how it helps me. Or, you know, all of those things that we overlook on a day-to-day -day basis that leaders need to do more of. We need to be those type of people from the front that are pouring into everyone. And that goes back to just our constant conversations on leadership. It's not about how many people we can get to follow us or like our pictures. It's about how many people that are already surrounding us that we can pour into and help become better and grow and, and continue to push. So thank you incredibly for one, that challenge to all of our listeners to within your organization, whether you're first year or you're in your 15th year, you know, who in that organization do you not know? Can you pour into, can you get to know uh, and let them know why they matter, why their work matters here on the team and, and see where it goes. And so Lauren, that, that was fantastic. Uh, where obviously you're tweeting a ton of SEC football stuff uh, this time of year and a little bit of NASCAR, but where uh, is Twitter the best place to follow you is uh, Instagram. Where's your favorite social media platform. And for our listeners that want to learn more about the work that you do in that space, uh, whether it's on ESPN or whether your speaking career in terms of helping people with addiction and, and heartbreak, uh, where can we find out more and best get connected to you? Yeah. So uh, of course I got a website, laurensisler.com. Um, but yeah, I love social media. I always say this, my inbox is open. I would love to hear from you guys, feedback, comments, whatever, um, at Lauren Sisler. So Twitter is kind of like, 
you know, my sports role. I do a lot of sports talk on there. And then of course, Instagram's a little bit more of my, you know, hey, this is this is the life of Lauren Sisler. Um, but just, you know, the different things that are happening in, in my life and really just the different outreach events and stuff. And then obviously a Facebook page, LinkedIn, you name it, um, it's there. Uh, the inbox is open. Would love to hear from you all. And uh, I just appreciate this opportunity. And yeah you know, um, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Jake, and, and all that you do to pour into people's lives and, and to, to feed them with, with such great purpose. And uh, I, I just, I appreciate everyone for listening and this great opportunity. Yeah, and, and I would be remiss as we are recording this today on Veterans Day, if we didn't give a shout out to your brother who served in the Navy. So Woo! happy Veterans Day to him. I know you are a very proud sister uh, in that. But Lauren, thank yes. you incredibly for coming on the show this week for investing some time with us and more importantly, investing in everyone listening to help them become better leaders and compete. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. As always, drop us a note with your feedback to podcast at competeeveryday.com. Check out more episodes, find amazing apparel, get connected with the community at competeeveryday.com. And until next week, bring your best, show up every day regardless of how you feel, and be that type of competitor you were created to be. Boom.